This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this episode. We love speaking to CEOs of listed companies, and we've got a massive CEO here over in the US, uh, but exciting news that they're coming to Australia. That's it. Really pumped. And it is our absolute pleasure to welcome Brian Armstrong to the studio. Brian, welcome. Thanks, guys, for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. So Brian is the co-founder and CEO of Coinbase. Brian and his co-founder, Fred Ursum, founded Coinbase in 2012 as a way for investors to trade Bitcoin and other digital currencies. Ten years later, Coinbase is a $20 billion company listed on the NASDAQ with more than 43 million users worldwide. So we are very fortunate to have Brian with us today and we're going to unpack the story of Coinbase, its expansion and the future of crypto. So let's get stuck in, Ren. Let's do it. Now, Brian, we love to start these interviews by having the CEO describe their company in their own words. So to kick us off today, what is Coinbase? Yeah, sure. So Coinbase is the primary financial account for people accessing the crypto economy. So that basically means we help them buy and sell crypto, we help them store it, and then we actually help them use Use it in a variety of ways, whether that's paying for things online, whether that's using dApps and Web3, which a lot of people are interested in, whether it should be using DeFi, and of course, trading too. Trading is kind of the early use case for, for crypto that kind of kicked this whole thing off. So yeah, we've we've grown a lot since then. And um, yeah, actually in the intro, yeah, I think you said 43 million. We're up to 103 million verified users now. Oh, so sorry. it's been growing a lot in the last 10 years. And <laughs> no, I just, I had to get in that, that little uh, correction. But no, um, yeah, it, it, it all started with just me on a laptop, you know, hacking on a prototype. And now we're a public company and you know, almost 5,000 people. So it's uh, it's a pretty crazy journey over the last 10 years. Yeah, huge growth story. And apologies, 103 v 43, I would be correcting that yeah. as well. So <laughs> fair, fair play. So Brian, when you started Coinbase, as you said, back in 2012, 
Bitcoin was only a couple of years old. Ethereum hadn't even been conceived yet. What did you see in 2012 and how has the journey um, been watching the development of the crypto ecosystem? Yeah, so actually the first thing that I saw was not, was in 2010. It was probably around December, the holiday season uh, in 2010. And I was, at that time I was uh, working at Airbnb as a you know software engineer, product manager type role. And I was really just home for the holidays, visiting my family. And, you know, sometimes it gets overwhelming. You have too many family in the house. And I, I was kind of upstairs in my room, just reading things on the internet. And I happened to be on this website, Hacker News, which many of your listeners may have heard of. But I happened to see the Bitcoin white paper uh, in 2010 at that time. And I remember reading it and, I, and it kind of struck me. I was like, wow, this is a really powerful idea. It's kind of talking about how instead of having you know an internet that's global and decentralized where we can move information around what if we had something kind of like that but it was for moving value around and money and, and all types of value and that, i remember reading it and thinking like that's a really powerful idea because it always seems so broken to me how money moves around the world like every country has its own little proprietary you know system and and product and like you know there's usually a local oligopoly of players and if you want to move money across border or pay out people in various places around the world, which I had seen you know, as an employee at Airbnb. I had tried creating um, a company previously that had trouble doing this. And it always seemed like there just wasn't very much innovation happening in this space. You know, Like WhatsApp, for, for instance, allows you to send a message anywhere in the world instantly for free, right? And it's just sending some bits of data. Well, payments are just sending bits of data every time you swipe your credit card or you, you move a wire transfer, but why, why isn't it free and instant and global in payments too. And it's there's so much legacy baggage and, and, and tied up in all of this and every country sort of pushing their own system that there's no global open standard for money and, and value. So I got really excited about that idea over um, the coming six months and 12 months. I, you know, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I went to a couple of Bitcoin meetups in around the San Francisco Bay Area at that time where I was living. And um, there was a lot of early people there. You know, they were like kind of half crazy people and half like anarchists and stuff. And and then the other half were like these computer science PhD type people like working on various crypto algorithms, cryptography. So it was a really weird environment at that time. And there was already a couple of crypto companies that were out there like Mt. Gox. And there was one in the Bay Area called Trade Hill. So you might laugh at this, but I thought I was actually like probably I was too late. I always I remember in 2010, 11, I was like going out there. I was like, I was like, maybe I'm too late to start this company because like the early people are already making these things. Such a silly idea in hindsight. But um, yeah, I basically just couldn't stop thinking about it for like six months. Told all my friends about it. They thought it was crazy. That they thought it sounded stupid. But I couldn't help myself. I started working on a prototype nights and weekends, and that's kind of what eventually led to Coinbase. Yeah, wow. It's a it's an amazing story, and um, the Coinbase story. You know, you've scaled with the crypto ecosystem, and and you've really built a reputation for working with regulators and and trying to, I guess, take some of the legacy financial players and regulators on the journey with crypto. And it's led you to be one of the first listed crypto currency exchanges. I'm interested to know how the conversation has changed from when you were first having it in 2012, 2013, 2014, to now when you're having it in 2022. How have the legacy players sort of responded to crypto and how's that changed over the journey? Yeah. So early on, you know, I got a lot of blank looks when I told nobody had really heard of, of Bitcoin or anything at that time. And I remember you know, we were reaching out to like local banks and things like that. Like, hey, can we get an account set up for this thing? And we have an exchange for this digital currency platform. And 
we want to be able to process payments. And at first people just didn't even know what it was later they were like pretty anti anti this, you know, there was so many stories that came out early on about like Silk Road and like illicit activity. And, and you, know, you know, you still see some of that now, but it was like 10 X the amount of, it was like 90% scary stuff back then. And now it's like 10% scary stuff, like probably even less right back then. I remember actually one, one bank that I called, um, I was like, kind of dial- I was trying to find a bank to work with us. And, th- and they were like, we do not work with Bitcoin companies click. And they like, they like hung up on me. You know, <laughs> So I definitely got a little bit of um, that kind of stuff happening. But, I, you know, basically, through our contacts with early investors, we managed to get an early bank partner to work with us. Uh, we, we started investing early on in, in compliance, um, and having like a really strong kind of know your customer program. I, I basically the, the thesis I had early on was that this reg, this industry is eventually going to become regulated and treated like any other kind of financial services. So the regulatory environment takes a while to evolve, but let's just do something reasonable in the meantime and kind of show good faith effort to, to build the kinds of system that we think will eventually be required. And then that'll help us get off the ground. We also went and, you know, I was a software engineer and normally would just kind of wear the, the t-shirt or whatever, like I'm wearing now and hoodie or whatever. But, you know, when I'd go meet with regulators, Fred and I, we'd put on the suit and, um, you know, we went to talk with folks uh, who were kind of doing these money transmitter uh, regulatory regimes in the United States, uh, where it's state by state. And then we eventually started doing it internationally as well. And basically trying to be an educational resource, trying to just show up and be reasonable people. It's one of these one of these things I've noticed about human nature is um, oftentimes if people hear about something in the abstract, they're skeptical. Right. They're like, oh, this is just some crazy person on the Internet um, saying these things. But when they actually meet you in person, it's a lot harder to like be, you know, upset or like, you know, not trust somebody. Like if, if you're if you just show up and you're reasonable and you can communicate some stuff and they're like, OK, this this person is not a bad person. They're trying to do something good in the world. Like maybe there's some iteration they need to do. But um, anyway, that kind of stuff goes a long ways. Like these personal relationships matter. And so, yeah, I think Coinbase has built really that's kind of what we're known for is building the most trusted brand in crypto that's compliant it's regulated we have great cybersecurity. a lot of people trust us to store their crypto we've kind of landed deals with like the biggest financial firms out there in the world like blackrock and and then they also trust us for uh ease of use like our products are intended to make crypto easy and understandable to everybody you don't have to have like a computer science phd or or be some kind of like you know um quant trader or whatever uh, we want to make crypto accessible, although we have we have people, by the way, who are both of those things who who also use Coinbase. But, you know, most people in the world are not. And so um, we want it to be accessible, most trusted, easiest to use. That's kind of how I always think about our product offering. Yeah, love that. You're you're now entering uh, into Australia. We're really excited about that. I guess the question is why why Australia and and how do you plan to take market share? Because with it, what feels like more and more cryptocurrencies coming into the ecosystem every day, there's more and more exchanges now available. So yeah, how do you plan to take take uh, market share from some of the the main players here in Australia? Yeah, so we're really excited to, to launch in Australia. And I think one of the reasons is that, you know, Aussies have this history of kind of really embracing innovation and they've been on the forefront of a lot of that. Kind of to your prior question um, about the regulatory side, I mean, we went in and decided to kind of um, register with Austrack and, and really do this officially. And we created a local entity in Australia. We hired an amazing team locally on the ground. We did um, went and did integrations with PayID to make it really easy to get Australian dollars into and out of people's accounts. You know, we're even kind of enabling some of the uh, more advanced trading functionality for our users that want to do that. 
um, right in the app. And so, look, you're absolutely correct. There's actually lots of crypto companies now. And I, I consider this to be a good thing. It's kind of like, again, going back to my early example of the Internet, uh, when the Internet first came out, it's not like one company is going to win the Internet, right? The Internet is sort of a tool that's going to be embedded into all kinds of different things in the economy. Um, and that's what, how I feel about crypto, too. So, yeah, there's going to be some um, exchanges and, and trading that goes on. There's going to be people building um, crypto games. There's going to be decentralized social networks. There's going to be um, people creating new kinds of, like, organizations around DAOs, or some, like creative stuff around NFTs. So, you know, the way I think of Coinbase is the way we differentiate it. We're, we're not trying to be everything to everyone in, in crypto. But what I do think we've been able to do is basically, again, build the products that are the most trusted and the easiest to use. Um, so if people, retail customers want to come in and just, you know, they're getting, they're still still understanding crypto, they want to buy a little bit of it, um, get some exposure to it as an asset class, and then actually start to use it. Coinbase is a place where you can do all of those things in one app. We're not trying to be just um, just a trading platform for you know professional traders. We're trying to also allow people to go use their crypto in a very seamless and easy and, tr and trusted way. We're doing that for retail. We're also doing it for institutions, by the way. Um, some some big you know investment funds and hedge funds, pension funds. Um, they're also uh, we, we run the largest kind of institutional platform for crypto as well, called Coinbase Prime. So these are all good things that we can do any market that we go into, and hopefully you know we want to like help the whole crypto industry grow. It's not really about anything about. I'm much less focused on competition with any other particular crypto company and more, much more focused on like, how do we grow the size of the pie a hundred X? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Brian, speaking of, uh, growing the pie a hundred X in the crypto world, there's so much happening and, uh, we, we want to, I guess, get your thoughts on some of the big things that are happening, but we want to make it a bit of a game. So, uh, we're, we're calling it hot or not. We want to throw out some of these, uh, I guess, big moments in crypto or these big concepts and get your thoughts on them, whether you think they're hot or not, but also, I guess, a quick why. And we've got to start, we're recording this, uh, here in Australia on the 16th of September, the Ethereum merge happened yesterday. So hot or not, the Ethereum merge. Oh, very hot. <laughs> I'm <laughs> super proud and like, you know, just admire the team that had that that launch finally come together. And I think it's great for Ethereum. The merge is great for Ethereum, not only in terms of like scalability and the roadmap they have there, but also in terms of um, improving the decentralization of Ethereum, because uh, it doesn't have to have so much capex of these miners and certain data centers or it's also improving, um, you know, the energy efficiency of, of Ethereum. So anyway, you, you told me short answers. I'll try to keep them short. But yes, <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm hot on Ethereum merge for sure. Nice. All right, then. Hot or not, central bank digital currencies. Um, okay, so I have to think about this for a sec. I mean, central bank digital currencies, I think, are an important step to get more people bought in who are kind of skeptical on crypto. But honestly, I think the decentralized cryptocurrencies are the more important innovation that's going to be much, much bigger. So... I, I'm hot on central bank digital currencies to help people get into crypto, but I don't think it's the actual big opportunity. Yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. diplomatic enough answer. For you can, it's you, a not. You can say yeah. not. You can say not. You can it's also fine. say lukewarm if you just want to. <laughs> if you don't want to commit to either side. But hot or not, one of the hottest areas of uh, at least the last couple of years, NFTs. Yeah, I'm hot on NFTs. I think I think they're the real deal. They're here to stay. You know, a lot of things in crypto, they go through a big initial hype cycle and then they correct down. And that's kind of where, where NFTs are right now. But the long-term potential, I think, is enormous. And 
Yeah, we've uh, we've launched our own product in that space, Coinbase NFT, because we think it's going to be a big deal. All right, a couple to go. Hot or not, Web3? Again, I'm hot on Web3. So I think, um, you know, look, it's kind of a buzzword. People are like, what does it even mean, right? You know, look, Web1 was all about reading, kind of static web pages. Web2 was about reading and writing. You had like interactive web pages. Web3 is about reading, writing, and owning. So now people can launch these communities. Imagine like Uber or Airbnb or Wikipedia, whatever, that... You know, if people had actually who had contributed to growing those marketplaces and platforms, if they had able been able to own a piece of it for all the work they did, that would have been super cool. So I I think Web3 is a big deal and more and more apps are going to get built in that style. Mm. And then, uh, Brian, one more. uh, We should the learning that Bryce and I are taking from this is if we're speaking to a a CEO of a crypto company, (laughs) we should expect you to be hot on most of the things in the crypto ecosystem. (laughs) But hey, we'll ask it anyway. Uh, Hot or not, the metaverse. Yeah, so you're right. I'm hot on the metaverse too. I think, um, you know, I, look, I'm look, I'm I'm like a pro technology. I, I think technology is like one of the best ways to improve the world. And so, do I know exactly when these things are going to take off? No, but like as a long term trend, I think they're great. You know, um, yeah, the metaverse, by the way, plays pretty well with crypto. I think in the abstract, at least, because if you're going to have a persistent world with different things that you actually own, you don't want it to be like. Um, you know, an in-game item that like some centralized company controls that you want to actually own it, like these digital items and have them be provably unique. So to me, that sounds a lot like NFTs. I think I think a lot of the best metaverse platforms are going to have NFTs as sort of like, you know, whether it's a spaceship or some house or, you know, property in Decentraland. Um, these things are going to be NFTs in my view. And I, I actually think Coinbase probably should be doing more here to kind of integrate with some of the early metaverse platforms. Like, I don't know if you guys have been playing around with any of the latest um, Oculus stuff, uh, like Horizon Worlds and stuff like that. But I think, yeah, there's some cool opportunities there. One of my um, New Year's resolutions this year was to try and buy some property in uh, Decentraland. But when I logged on, it is ridiculously expensive, more, <laughs> almost more expensive than residential property here in Australia. So anyway, the dream can, the dream continues. So Brian, where- I was surprised how much it cost as well, yeah. I uh, know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> So, Brian, we're, we're living through a bit of a crypto winter at the moment. Um, some of us are feeling the pain. Uh, how have investors on the Coinbase platform been positioning their portfolios? What are you kind of seeing as some of the activity that's been going on? Yeah, so I think, you know, look, if you're going to be um, an investor in crypto or even just try to use crypto for a variety of things, you do have to have a strong stomach. You know, this is still an early industry and I've gone through four of these cycles now. Um, so for me, it feels a little bit normal, but each one is still a little difficult. And I can only imagine how difficult it is for people going through their their first cycle. I remember actually back, I think it was in 2011, I went out and bought a little bit of Bitcoin. I didn't have any money at the time, but I bought like maybe $500 or a couple hundred dollars or something like that. It's like, and um, I bought a Bitcoin at like $11. And um, it probably crashed down to like, $2 per Bitcoin. And I, I thought I was such an idiot. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like the worst investor ever. You know, basically, but I didn't sell. I just kind of held on to it. And obviously, over a period of many, many years, like that worked out great. Um, and so that's the, that's the lesson that I tell a lot of people. If, if you are going to kind of invest in crypto or anything like that, look, start with some de minimis amount that you're not um, super attached to, that you'd be okay if it went down to zero, right? In, th- in theory, not that it, not necessarily that it is, but crypto has gone through some corrections that of like 85%, 80%, right? We just recently went through one of at least 70% or something. So if you can hold through multiple, through a 
cycle at least or multiple cycles ideally ideally just put one percent of your net worth and hold it 10 years or something then you're going to be fine but if you're trying to kind of um you know trade day to day and everything i think it can be very stressful and people get into all kinds of crazy situations so yeah dollar cost averaging take a long-term mindset put a small percentage in that you that you're not willing you're not going to be too stressed about and then you'll be able to hold for the long term i think that part is a much better approach yeah nice mm, yeah it, it is just amazing how resilient bitcoin especially has been just falling 80 percent four times in a decade and at least historically coming back every time it, it's it's pretty rare that an asset does that so there's, there's something there. Mm. The other thing that uh, we've sort of seen this year is the some of the big, uh, I guess, companies in the crypto ecosystem uh, collapsing or, or nearly collapsing. Uh, Celsius, Three Arrows, Terra USD, Luna, uh, some of the names that come to mind. How, how are you sort of thinking about uh, what's happened this year, not just with the price of crypto assets, but also with some of the companies in the crypto ecosystem? Yeah. So as you mentioned, in this, in this downturn, which happened to coincide with a broader macroeconomic downturn, we did see some kind of uh, contagion from certain uh, firms that were a bit over leveraged. And you mentioned a few of them. I guess the way I think about it is that, you know, in that sense, crypto is not too different from the traditional financial system in a in a down market. Um, you know, some hedge funds that get over levered and these things tend to blow up. It's actually not that different from the traditional financial system. The difference in the crypto world, I guess, is that, you know, it didn't require any kind of government intervention or bailout or anything. And that's kind of what's amazing about crypto is that it's built this truly decentralized, more global crypto economy. And um, it's so far like operated incredibly well, even through a massive correction in the broader macro environment and the, you know, everything went down 70, 80%. And still crypto just kind of keeps on functioning. Even it, you know, if there was a couple firms like this that were highly levered and, you know, they, they should probably do a better job like disclosing these things to customers about exactly what they're doing. And customers need to be made aware of how their funds are being used. That part is like, you know, we'll leave that to others to figure out like in the courts and whatnot. But um, you know, in general, I think it showed that the crypto economy is very resilient. And luckily, Coinbase didn't have any exposure to these particular firms, and we've taken a pretty conservative approach for the long term. So having been around 10 years, it's given us a good perspective on how to weather any of these storms. And um, yeah, that's something we'll keep doing for many decades, hopefully. Yeah, I, I was reading uh, something about Three Arrows, who, uh, and the analogy was made to long-term capital management, which was a... Um, a stock uh, trading firm uh, in the late 90s that collapsed massively. Um, but the Federal Reserve stepped in to backstop them to bail out a lot of their customers because they were similarly, uh, you know, massively over leveraged and there was a bit of systemic risk there. I guess the difference in the crypto ecosystem is when Three Arrows gets over leveraged, uh, the Federal Reserve doesn't step in <laughs> and bail them out. But you're right, the, there hasn't been as much contagion across the, the industry as um, as some, some may have expected. Uh, is that just really good risk management from the point of view of crypto CEOs? Or like, how do you attribute, it could have been a lot worse and it wasn't. So what, what do you sort of put that down to? Or was it just Sam Bankman-Fried opening the checkbook and <laughs> backing up a lot of companies? There's always opportunities in down markets. So I think, you know, lots of companies are out there sort of looking at opportunities, but at least the way I think of it, just because a company gets in trouble financially doesn't mean that it should be bailed out, right? Like that's part of a healthy function of capitalism is that 
um, you know, good companies are get more capital to allocate and bad companies sometimes they go away. And so those people can kind of move on to more productive areas of the economy. So it's funny, even if you go back to the Bitcoin Genesis block, um, you may know this already. I'm not sure some of your listeners may, but it's in the original, the first Bitcoin block that was ever mined, you know, Satoshi, whoever that was, decided to mint into or not mint to mine in, in that block this headline from um, the times that, you know, Chancellor on the brink of bailout. And so Bitcoin really was born as a re- as a result of the 2008 or in that in that environment, the 2008 financial crisis. And it's kind of saying, hey, why do we why, why are we taking taxpayer money and bailing out like these these things that create lots of risk and there's like moral hazard issues and all these kinds of things. So I don't know, maybe maybe I'm just a diehard capitalist at heart, but I, I do think that um, creative destruction is, is a real thing in, in capitalism. You, if something's not working, if it's not creating enough value or it took too much risk, it should probably go away because that's like it's a signal to the rest of the market about how to manage um, customer funds appropriately and how to build resilient companies that do have long-term <laughs> capital management, not just not just in name. Now, Brian, no doubt you've got your finger on the pulse with what's coming down the the pike in uh, over the next sort of decade or so in the crypto ecosystem. So before we touch on that, we're just going to take a very quick break to hear from our sponsors. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Brian, um, with everything that you're sort of seeing at the moment, we we went through in the game NFTs, Web3, Metaverse, plenty going on. But what are some of the areas of the emerging crypto ecosystem that you're really excited about that you think, um, you know, this is this is what I'm going to tie myself to? This is what everyone should be sort of following and thinking about. Yeah, well, I'll give you an example of a couple of things that are already here today and then a couple on the horizon. So, you know, one thing is uh, staking, right? Like people are now able to earn yield on their crypto assets, kind of like, you know, a savings account or something like that in the traditional world. But you can actually direct your own funds and, and stake them. But what you're doing, by the way, that's a fancy word of just saying you're helping um, these crypto networks achieve consensus is kind of a re- very high level way to think about it. And um, Coinbase makes it really easy to kind of flip a button begin to stake your crypto assets, and then you can earn um, a yield on this and, and kind of get payouts from it every every day or week or month. Um, we also have something, a self-custodial wallet called Coinbase Wallet. The name's probably a little confusing, but what it means is a lot of times people start off by buying their own crypto and they want to store it on a centralized um, you know, brokerage or exchange like Coinbase. And that makes it real easy for them to get started. But increasingly, they want to go use their crypto in more and more ways, including in Web3, 
and actually store it themselves. It's a longer conversation, but anyway, we've made it really easy for people to transfer their crypto into something called Coinbase Wallet, and now they can go use this whole world of dApps or decentralized apps that are being built in Web3, which is really exciting. We also have a product called uh, Coinbase Cloud, which is essentially... You know, it's sort of like Amazon Web Services for crypto. And so any kind of business or startup that wants to integrate crypto, we have a suite of APIs that makes it really easy to do that. You know, we even have something called Coinbase Commerce that's letting people accept crypto payments. And we're seeing uh, crypto payments grow in, in some areas that are like not so much brick and mortar, you know, stores like local coffee or whatever, but more like online marketplaces and, and um, applications are sort of like the early adopters of this communities where the only way to pay is with crypto because it's truly a global online community. It's not based in one particular country. So those are a few things. And, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff coming down the horizon as well, which we're just starting to see in crypto, like decentralized identity um, is a way, you know, traditionally people have had their online identity is with a big tech company, Google, Facebook, Apple, or um, in the, you know, traditional world, they have their identity with the local government where they, where they live. You know, there's a printed piece of paper or ID or something. But in the crypto world, um, you can actually own your own identity. And um, it uses kind of public-private key cryptography, which is probably beyond most people. But the, the goal of it is like, you can own your own data. You can make sure to um, be the one who signs into any profile. And like, you own that. It's not controlled by some um, big tech company. Um, there's there's a lot of other stuff we could talk about. There's decentralized social media. There's, I think, like crypto cities are start on the horizon, which could be really cool. And, you know, DAOs are going to be like pretty interesting, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Probably too many things to even talk about. <laughs> in one answer. No, I love that. Love that. But I, I want to put our, um, our investing uh, or investor cap on now because uh, a lot of our listeners, um, you know, out there building portfolios in, in listed markets and you've gone from being a software engineer in 2010 to now a CEO of more than 5,000 people, uh, a company with a market cap of 17, 20 odd billion dollars. Uh, it's, it's been quite the, the growth story and I'm sure you've learned plenty along the way. So what, what have been some of the, I guess, major surprises or major learnings for you over the last sort of 10 years in, in, from your, from your own point of view, leadership, uh, managing people, things that you didn't expect to, to be the case? Hmm. Well, let's see. There's a lot of things we could jump into. Um, <laughs> look, one thing I've noticed just about creating companies is that um, probably the number one skill set is around determination and resilience. You know, um, it's it's actually not, like I don't think you know I wasn't like the smartest person who ever tried to create a company in this space. I, I was not the best at fundraising. I don't think I even necessarily had like the most brilliant idea or anything like that. It's like it's. It's it's ninety nine percent perspiration and just execution, and it's, you have to be kind of unreasonably determined to be a founder because starting any company, it's just going to be setback after setback. And you know, if you're starting a company because you know you just want to make money or something like that, um, it has to be about something bigger than that, something you're really passionate about. Because otherwise, you're going to be two three years in, nothing's working. You know, someone's suing you, this person quit. <laughs> you know, your stuff got. Um, your code sucks, whatever. And you're just going to give up because it's just, you have to move from one setback to the next with enthusiasm is, is a great quote that I like. 
Um, so that's one thing I've kind of learned about determination. Another quote that I like is like, you know, action produces information, right? So people often will kind of like debate at these things endlessly. Like, well, what is, is this going to happen or is that? And I think this, and I think that, and it's kind of like, you're looking at this mountain, um, and that's shrouded in fog and you're, you're at the base of the mountain and, um, you're like, I want to get to the top of that mountain or at least pretty far up it. And look, at some point, like the only way to, to do it is you have to take a few steps into the fog, into the unknown, because once you take a few steps, you can then see a few more steps ahead. And maybe you're maybe you're up against a cliff or maybe you have to backtrack or maybe you see another few steps that keep going up. And that's great. But I do I do see this a lot. Like most people in the world, you know, they have ideas and they think about like, what if that and what if this and someday maybe I'll do it. But the entrepreneurial mindset is just like action produces information, just just do something, even if it's anything. If it's the wrong thing, it'll it'll help you think about the, what the right thing is. And there was many times in my life at Coinbase where I didn't really know what to do. And so I just started doing random things or any, anything I could think of. And most of them weren't the right thing. But oftentimes, right as I finished doing the thing that was not the right thing, I'd be like, actually, I know what I know what I should have done. Right. And so um, that's been a great uh, lesson for us as well. Yeah, 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 I love that. Action produces information. Alec and I, we've only quit our corporate jobs a couple of years ago and sort of feel like we're in the same, well, not not the same situation, <laughs> but a situation of, um, you know, trying to get to that top of the mountain covered in fog. And I think that's a great, um, something that we'll definitely take away. So yeah, that was, that was good. Yeah. What, one thing, uh, keeping our uh, listed stock market investor hat on, one, one thing that Bryce and I are really fascinated in, uh, what the like the metrics that matter and the metrics that don't because there's a lot of noise in the the world of the stock market and uh, Bryce and I both come from a retail background and when we were working in retail you realize that there are some metrics that just matter more than most other ones that the media spe- spend a lot of time speaking about so I'm interested in your world of crypto of uh, online exchanges what are the metrics that really matter for you as the CEO and you know for us as investors what are the metrics that we should really pay attention to yeah it's a good it's a good question I mean what you end up measuring does change the culture of the company and I guess as an investor it's even a, it's even a more interesting question um, I'll try the investor piece first then think about coinbase I mean so on the investor side, you know, like the, the the simplest thing that people always look at is the price, right? And so much ink has been spilled, kind of, with people writing in the press about the price of this is up, it's down, you know, this much. And um, it's really, to me, it always strikes me as kind of like a very short-term mindset around like um, if it's up, that's good, and if it's down, it's bad. It, that never really makes sense to me because. Well, first of all, if it's down, maybe you know you should buy low, sell high. <laughs> if it's if it's up, maybe it's already overvalued. And so, th- this on the face of it, that advice might be wrong. But I think what I always cared about with crypto was not so much what the price of it was, although that's nice, and it gets more people interested and everything. But the thing I was always more interested in was are people actually using crypto more, right? So I started looking at things like what are the number of transactions happening on on these networks per day or per month or per year, right? And what I was really excited to see over the last, um, you know, since maybe 2018 or so is that, you know, people for the first like six, seven years of the company, people would always ask me like, where are the use cases? This is all just trading and people are speculating. And, you know, around 2018, we started to see things like DeFi really take off. And then we saw, you know, like crowdfunding and, um, you know, NFTs. And like now there's all this stuff, all, like tons of apps and startups being built in this space. And so... That is starting to, I, I start to look at how many transactions per day are happening on these networks as a good indication of like real utility. So that, I don't know, that's just one high level idea. You can also look at like the number of GitHub commits 
um, for these different uh, uh, different blockchains and and sort of get a sense of what the developer community looks like. I mean, you have to kind of tease apart the data because you don't want to just get fake commits, right? Some of them are just somebody forking it and changing one line or whatever. But if you can somehow scrape like the data on GitHub and GitLab, and I think I've seen a lot of investors use that as sort of a proxy to understand like how, where, you know, where are the nerds spending their time on the weekends? That's a good indication of where things are going in the future. Um, in terms of Coinbase, in terms of what metrics, you know, we look at, so look, a lot of our North Star, you know, our North Star metric is really around like monthly transacting users. So it's again, it's not necessarily people just trading. It's like, although that's one of the types of uh, active users or trading users that we have, or sorry, transacting users we have. But it's also people, you know, they're, they're doing staking, they're doing peer-to-peer -peer payments, like they're earning money with crypto, they're, they're engaging with dApps and DeFi. And, um, and so this is another uh, North Star metric that we have internally is like, you know, how many people are actually engaging in the crypto economy in some meaningful way, not just, not just like viewing a, a page or looking at their balance, but actually doing some kind of transaction. And, and what's cool is that we've seen in our own user base at Coinbase, um, it used to be like 90% was around trading, you know, and only 5% or even less a few, a few years back was around non-trading activity. Now we're seeing more than 50% of our users, our active users are doing something other than trading in, in addition to trading typically um, with their crypto and different transaction types are really emerging. And that's, that's really exciting to me because it shows that this has moved well beyond trading and it's now starting to be a true economy where people are earning money, spending it, you know, borrowing and lending, like, and doing all kinds of things that aren't even anything to do with money, frankly, like identity and social media. Um, so it's been pretty cool to see the evolution of the space. Mm. Well, Brian, it's been um, an awesome conversation. We are unfortunately um, running out of time. So we will move to our final three questions that we ask all of our CEOs when they join us on the show. And it starts with um, the next 12 months, what's coming down, down the, uh, product pipeline that you're able to share or major developments for Coinbase over the next 12, 12 months? Yeah. Um, let's see. There's a few things. So, you know, I mentioned a few times decentralized identity. Um, I'm pretty excited about that. I think being able to have a true um, identity is like a nice foundational piece of the crypto economy because then you can have like reputation associated with that and like you can have a even... Um, a friend graph and start to follow people and it, all kinds of things emerge from that. Um, so decentralized identity is something that we're already integrated into our products like Coinbase wallet. You can go get um, an ENS name, they call it like an Ethereum name system. And we make it easy and free for any user to go in there and claim a decentralized identity. So that's pretty cool. Another one is, you know, we launched um, a subscription product uh, kind of kind of like Amazon Prime, but it, it's called Coinbase One. And so for people who, who use the crypto economy a lot and they don't want to have like high trading fees, you can basically just um, subscribe to Coinbase One and then you get unlimited uh, trading with no trading fees. So that's pretty cool. And then I would say we're going to keep doubling down on our policy efforts globally. And, you know, being in Australia, that was a big piece of what we did with, with Austrack and um, we worked with a number of kind of the local uh, folks there, like Blockchain Australia and the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, um, to just kind of collaborate more. But there's a lot that we can do on the policy effort side. We're integrating a lot more of that into our products, actually, by helping our customers understand, you know, for their their policymakers in their in their local area, what are their positions on crypto? Are they pro innovation, pro crypto, pro sensible policies? By the way, around regulation that'll help make sure this space is treated with 
on a level playing field with, you know, traditional financial services, but also preserve the innovation potential? Or, you know, are they still kind of anti-crypto for some reason? And we want to make sure that all of our customers are aware of these kind of things in democracies around the world. So those are some of the things coming down the pipe in the next 12 months. Mm. Brian, I've got to ask a follow-up on Coinbase One. Uh, Bryce and I have a running joke that every business now wants a subscription service and then a streaming service as part of that subscription service. And we saw Walmart, of all people, add a streaming service to their subscription offering. Are you going to have a streaming service (laughs) as part of Coinbase One? I totally feel you on that. Like... There was that great meme during the pandemic that was like, you know, Netflix is this much, like $9 and Amazon Prime and like Hulu. And then it was like Harvard University, you know, like $300,000 a year or whatever. And it's basically just sitting there in front of the streaming, just like, you know, everything else. But yeah, so we're not planning to launch any video platform in the near future. But um, the reason why so many companies love these, these streaming things is that, especially in the public markets, they give you like a huge, there's, there's a huge benefit to having predictable revenue streams, right? And um, there's, it's sort of called like quality of revenue, right? And you, you, as investors, I'm sure you're like familiar with this, but um, you know, the trading fee business that our, our original products were based around, incredibly lucrative when people are doing high volume trading in up markets, especially, but it can be so volatile where, um, you know, things that we just have, it's like feast or famine. And um, that's fine from my point of view. I, we don't, because we zoom out, we think long-term, right? Like maybe things are really good one year and not as good the next year. And we kind of smooth it out over a two or three year period. But um, in the public markets, they, they don't like that. They want your revenue to be predictable and there's a real premium for that. And so I think there's a way we can make it win-win. It's, it's actually better for customers because they can basically just pay one fee, know exactly what that is, and then have unlimited trading and doing all kinds of other things, not just trading in crypto, like you know NFTs and staking, get, getting better rates. And so if they, it's just like peace of mind. I think if people want to pay that flat fee and then never have to think about it again, and it's better for the company because they get their revenue streams are more predictable. So anyway, a little inside baseball there. Mm. So Brian, what's the biggest risk to your business at the moment? The biggest risk is probably that um, we just have a lot of new employees that haven't gone through a crypto cycle before. So I do feel like a lot of my job is just kind of keeping everybody in the boat and don't let, let's not get distracted. Let's just keep building great stuff. Traditionally, these down cycles are actually big moments and opportunities to go build the best stuff that's going to help us get out in, in, in the next bull run. If you look historically, the, the down markets have actually been actually really good for us as a company. But the first time people go through it, it's super scary, right? And like, you know, their friends and their family are sending them these these news articles about, oh my gosh, isn't like crypto failing or whatever, you know, negative story is out there. So a lot of my job is just combating that and trying to be more visible and vocal in these moments and tell people, you know, look, like markets go up, markets go down. And in this case, it's not even a crypto thing. It's like the whole macro economy is down. But it doesn't mean like this trend is changing. Like our, our mission is still really important. We want to create more economic freedom in the world. We think crypto is a good way to do that. These products uh, are going to go through cycles and they have a ton of upside. And so, yeah, let's keep building the stuff that's the most trusted, the easiest to use in the crypto space. And I think it's all going to work out great. And then, Brian, final question that we like to end all of our interviews with. Uh, we're long-term investors here at Equity Mates, and, and you mentioned there that you like to zoom out and think long-term and smooth out uh, different years. If you think coin, think about Coinbase in 10 or maybe even 20 years, what does success look like? Yeah, I think that, look, in 10 years, I hope we have at least a billion people accessing the open financial system every day through our products. 
success is that we have a more global economy at that point that, that where there's more economic freedom and things are more fair and they're more free for the average person. It unlocks a whole bunch of innovation. Crypto is kind of considered this new global reserve currency that just, um, you know, eases and reduces friction in the global economy and, and unlocks innovation. So that's, that's what success looks like to me in 10 years. Huge goal, a billion people. Billion people. That is ambition. Love it. Well, Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. You know, I took so much from that episode and I'm sure the Equity Mates community did as well. We appreciate your time. Good luck with the launch here in Australia. We'll be watching closely and hopefully um, we can catch up in the future again. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, guys. That was a great conversation and I'd love it if people can go check out the app and let us know how it goes. Thanks, Brian. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equitymates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.